You're listening to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast, where we cover how to get really strong, increase sports performance, training, nutrition, rehab, and lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome to the Complete Performance Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hackamacki, and I have here with me on episode 8, Jason Tremblay. In this episode, Jason covers how the strength guys came to be, what data and metrics are available to track, uses for peak volume, how to apply progressive overload, the science behind speed training, specificity in powerlifting versus field and court sports, modifiable training factors such as volume, intensity, frequency, rest, and duration, meet attempt selection, setting an athlete's expectations prior to a meet, and RPE versus percentage training. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Jason gives a lot of insight into how to take a scientific approach and apply it to training. All right, guys, I got Jason from the Strength Guys on today. Um, I came across him when I purchased the Strength Guys software and just seeing how in-depth uh, it is, it's really interesting to me and wanted me to have him on here to find out a little bit about what makes him tick as well as the strength guys. So without stealing too much of your show, Jason, do you want to kind of give some of your background? Uh, yes. So thank you for having me on, Tyler. And I hope that each listener of this episode is able to come away with at least one tip or uh, story that resonates with them and helps them in their coaching or their training or their outlook on strength and conditioning really um so my background is uh i'm now in my 10th year of uh education at university um i first uh started in university as a uh it wasn't so i, I like to explain to people that the first education I took, which is personal fitness trainer certificate at Mount Royal University, uh, it was all of the essential courses of kinesiology, but you don't have to take, you know, all the, the fluffs. There was no history. There was no um, looking into like sociology or, you know, all the other things that you have to do in order to graduate with an undergrad degree. Um, so I took that. And one of my professors was uh, a powerlifting coach and uh, an owner of a, a prominent powerlifting gym here in town. My hometown is Calgary, Alberta. And he kind of opened my eyes to periodization. And I found that to be very interesting and something that I wanted to look more into. Um, so I decided once I graduated with my personal fitness trainer certificate from Mount Royal University, that I wanted to uh, take high school chemistry, which I didn't have to do uh, in order to get into that program so that I could come back and get into a kinesiology program. So uh, in that gap year, I started a company called The Strength Guys uh, with, my, with our co-founder and with my friend, uh, Anthony Walker. Um, the Strength Guys was just supposed to be networking uh, with other fitness professionals while Anthony and I were pursuing our degrees in kinesiology. Um, so started that up on, on Twitter and just started 
posting my thoughts on strength training and what I was looking into uh, and networking with other people every single day. Uh, while I was upgrading my high school the year after I finished my training certificate, once I uh, finished upgrading high school, uh, I enrolled in uh, my undergraduate degree in physical education, kinesiology, and uh, the strength guys became a training business, and it was never supposed to be that. So that was a little bit of a surprise, but uh, people started requesting training services from me, uh, asking, hey, do you write programs? And uh, A few of the people in our early days who uh, signed on as clients are uh, Gary Amlinger, who's one of the top uh, natural bodybuilders in the world now. Uh, Jeff Nippert, who's also one of the top natural bodybuilders in the world. Uh, Mark Martin, who is a legend in, in NASCAR. Um, he's now in the Hall of Fame for that. And uh, Taylor Atwood, who's now the best powerlifter in the world. Um, so within the first year of providing training for people, uh, I had a lot of really high-level good clients come in uh, coming through our doors and uh, around that started to grow our team um, hired coaches we've had coaches come and go uh, we've reorganized our group over over time and uh, now here we are uh, almost I guess eight years later uh, our team of, of 17 people here at the strength guys um, we have clients in over 40 different countries around the world. Um, I've coached six U.S. national champions, uh, three Canadian national champions, um, three world champions, and uh, with Ben Esgro, uh, my co-coaching partner, uh, we, we also coach the best lifter in the world now, Taylor Atwood. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about myself. I'm also in the uh, final semester of finishing up my undergraduate degree. Uh, as anyone can imagine, running a business and um, interning in different places and uh, really pursuing knowledge however else I could uh, was very uh, thought intensive. And so I really had to space my degree out over the course of many years so that I could finish this. Um, and most recently, I've also ventured into sports science with the uh, Calgary Flames, where I did work with their uh, NHL team over the course of the summer as well. So that's a little bit about me. It's awesome. It sounds like you have a lot to juggle. Um, it also sounds like the strength guys uh, kind of unexpectedly hit the ground and took off running. Um, with uh, you going to school and just getting kind of thrown into um, so much initial success, how do you balance the work life um taking on more and learning more um as you continue to grow um personally yeah um so when the strength guys took off uh the strength guys is actually my first ever job i had never worked for anyone in my life and now all of a sudden i had to run payroll uh <laughs> in in our paypal and we had you know more money than i knew what to do with from uh, our client income at that time and I didn't know that you had to pay employees on certain days of the month or anything like I, I was I was green as could be and all of this um, so I figured it out 
by working hard uh, because I had to. And uh, there was not a lot of work-life balance. Um, I like to think that over time, work-life balance has gotten a little bit better. But there's always new challenges, uh, whether that is like a, a busy semester at school combined with having a client load of 40 clients or uh, whether that's a work problem or redesigning our services during the semester or working and balancing that with NHL stuff and traveling and, and having a, a girlfriend, you know, like uh, the challenges are always just new uh, and just have to try to be responsible and on time with uh, everyone who I owe something for. Uh, that's how I manage it. It's a really good problem to have. Do you want to go over what uh, kind of makes the strength guys different? Um, I know just uh, from having interaction with you through email and talking, but do you want to explain to the viewers about what you think separates the strength guys? So, I group three years ago. Uh, I decided we're going to start over from scratch uh, as far as who is on our staff. And I'm going to build this based off of community. And so I hired from that point uh, Alfred Jong, who's now one of our best coaches, uh, John Downing. He's also one of our best coaches um, and Krista Dunsmore and Taylor Atwood. And I'm like, these are the people that we're going to build the community around. And over time we've added people to the community. And I think the thing that makes the strength guys truly different is community because our community is what has attracted top-level talent to come work for our group. They want to be a part of our think tank. They want to be a part of the innovation. They want to uh, talk to the good people that we have working for us. So I think behind the scenes, the engine of it is community. I think for the athletes who we train, the engine of it is uh, very innovative processes that are uh, based off of research, that are data-driven uh, and that are proprietary. So the way that I'd explain this to someone is that uh, before I partnered up with Ben Esgro, when Ben Esgro came on as a coach for the strength guys, Ben had already coached numerous uh, world champions and many, many Arnold Classic champions and U.S. national champions. And I had coached some U.S. national champions um, and had some close finishes at Worlds where we had silver instead of gold. So we had both done well on our own. But Ben came to me and through our weekly calls where we began coaching our rosters of athletes together, uh, he would kind of lay out an experiment that he did many years ago and the results of that experiment. And I also think I'm pretty good with creating uh, systems and, and really helping people grasp a concept. So around those experiments, uh, I kind of took the ball and together we made it basketball. Like it, we created a system together, uh, which now all of our TSG coaches train athletes with. Um, 
where powerlifting training is now being conducted in a database way that uh, is not alike anything that's out there. And ever since this has happened, uh, which is now about two years ago, um, I feel that our results have been the strongest of any team in the world by far. And I think if you look at the meet history of meets which we've attended, um, those results speak strongly for themselves. So I think now those innovative processes and the data-driven approach that we use are what set the strength guys apart. Behind the scenes, it's the community that we have that people want to be a part of. Absolutely. Success breeds success. Um, without getting too much into the proprietary information um, and how in-depth it is, do you want to go over what type of data and metrics are most useful for power lifters? Kind of looking in hindsight as it is a pretty loaded question. Yeah. Um, so I, I have no problem with, with sharing. We look at volume and uh, relative intensity, and those are really the only things that we pay attention to. Uh, we may also value frequency uh, when analyzing a training program, but those are variables. Um, and within that, what we're looking at are uh, peak volumes, so the most volume you've ever done uh, overall, and what the relative intensity is. Relative intensity is close to average intensity, so it's the percentage of one or a maximum that you trained with. Um, so we'll look at overall peak volume, and we'll also look at peak volume for uh, each program that we design. Um, and we make our training decisions based off of that. Uh, we also do training assessments to uh, identify whether or not our training programs are working. And by looking at training assessments, uh, the monitoring of training, um, dealing with athlete communication, and looking at the training volume, which an athlete did, uh, we determine um, what we're gonna do next. <laughs> so that's, that's the surface level of what we look at uh, when training. Uh, just through social media, I know the strength guys take a really specific approach to training. Uh, do you want to kind of go over what this looks like um, with your team? Sure. So I think this came out with the West Side versus the World documentary on Netflix too. Uh, the idea of, of speed training um, for powerlifting. And I think when you look at the physiology behind uh, strength training, we're looking at improving a specific section of the force velocity curve so that we can perform well in powerlifting. And the velocities which we're training at are slow and the forces which we need to perform at are maximal. Right, so that's what we're looking to get to, and so by looking at the force velocity relationship, where uh, we can move a muscle very fast when there is not a large force demand on it, 
or there's not a large uh, load imposed on it. But when there is a maximal load imposed on it, we cannot move a muscle very fast, right? Uh, and eventually there comes a point where you cannot move the muscle concentrically anymore. It becomes an isometric. And eventually you can't even hold the same position. You just start getting crushed, right? It becomes an eccentric. Um, and so for our listeners who can't see the force velocity curve, I encourage you to look at it in Google Images and familiarize yourself with it. Um, and even for anyone who is a powerlifter, I think they should read A Coach's Guide to Strength Development, Part 1 by Matt Jordan on Stuart McMillan's website. Uh, you don't need to have a kinesiology degree to understand it, but it explains to you the basic fundamentals of strength and strength training really, really well. So uh, you're looking at improving a certain section of the force velocity curve, and you're also looking at uh, improving the movement with a specific length tension relationship. Uh, and that's the interaction of the active components, which is muscle, uh, the passive components, and the elastic components. Um, so when we start to do light training movements and train fast, we're not training at a specific section along the force velocity curve that's specific. When we start to change movements, we're now not training the length tension curve that's specific to what we need to perform with. And the question can be asked of whether or not uh, you can make improvement by training uh, different exercises. Uh, and I think the answer to that is yes. You know, if, if they're relatively close to the main lift, you could probably make improvements at the main lift. But the question that we respond with is, if you have to perform the main lift, why don't you just do the main lift, right? Like, if training the back squat in order to improve the back squat is a correlation of one, right, when we're looking at training the competition, and training the back squat versus training the uh, pause squat and the speed squat are a correlation of 0.7, you would, the scientists would pick the correlation of one to train with. And that's what we've done. We're just picking the specific motor pattern, the specific weight tension curve, and the specific force velocity curve that we need to train in the meet, and we need to do well in the meet, and we're training that and we're coaching that and what we found through uh again multiple like consecutive wins world championships like um coaching the best lifter in the world is that powerlifting can really be as simple as uh just changing the variables of training the main lift uh and obviously when you're training someone with a gift such as you know, Taylor Atwood or Eli Burks, that drives progress. But we've also found for people who are learning powerlifting, it drives progress. For people who are hard gainers, it drives progress. They do not need to do a lot of accessory exercises in order to get better. Uh, we just train squat, bench press, and deadlift, and then we do other movements for bodybuilding, for general health, what have you, uh, around that. And... This simple training model is easy to manipulate uh, data variables in, and that's why we like it a lot.
I think it makes a lot of sense, especially for uh, tracking the data and the metrics on it. Um, I also think it's kind of uh, contrary to what a lot of people would think. Um, with someone starting out in the gym, they would put them more on accessory type movements. Um, but specificity definitely is king when it comes to sports. Do you want to talk about how um, specificity uh, is applied through the strength guys to sports, maybe other than powerlifting? Yeah. Uh, so the best case that I could speak about there are the discussions I had with the Calgary Flames strength and conditioning staff uh, during our second journal club uh, during my internship this summer. I went through, uh, so first off, I'll say that the Calgary Flames strength and conditioning staff is nothing but impressive. Um, the head strength and conditioning coach has an Olympic gold medal under his belt. He has two Stanley Cup rims. Uh, and last year, they had one tendon-related injury uh, during the entire season. Uh, and of course, like some players will get in a fight and get a broken jaw or whatever. But when you're tracking injuries that may be related to S and C, getting in a fight is not <laughs> an injury. That's the strength and conditioning coach's fault. Calgary's Flames strength and conditioning co coaches are fantastic. And uh, I wanted to help by utilizing my skill set to maybe help them find some things out about their own training methods and what was making things so, uh, you know, so effective. And so I created an athlete management system that would uh, analyze their entire uh, summer of movement training. So this is all the uh, mobility we did, all of the uh, rhythm exercises, all of the change of direction exercises, plyos, lateral, linear. We had like 20 different categories and conditioning as well. And in this journal club, uh, Ryan Van Asten, Alan Selby, uh, my fellow intern, Kalen Relkoff, and I sat down and we looked at the volume data of what the NHL players did in their off season. And we looked at their skating, how much they skated in the off season to prepare for a training camp. And I think it became clear to us when we were analyzing the differences between what uh, the training program for the Flames looked like and the training program that, uh, not necessarily the training program, the mentality that rest is a weapon. Uh, and we're comparing the two. And this is very analogous to how we power lift as well. The Calgary Flames strength and conditioning staff seem to me to believe that in training camp, the volume of skating and practice and playing hockey is going to be very high, right? Uh, and in the season, you are lucky if you get three days in between games. Like usually you have one day in between game or two days in between games. And sometimes you're, a lot of times you're traveling on those days, right? And this is five months. And so the season is a grind. And it seemed to me that the philosophy of the Calgary Flames strength and conditioning staff is that we are going to train the athletes to have a sick work capacity. Like we're going to train them with a lot of work 
and they've got to adapt to doing a lot of work, uh, dry land and on ice, so that they have the capacity to handle how rough the actual season is, right? And you can still perform. And so I think when you look at the topic of workload management, uh, this is a very specific way to go about hockey training, but there's also a lot of variation in their program, right? Like how they actually train the athletes, very varied, but the cumulative workload is very high. And I found this similar to how we prepare our powerlifters, because to go back to this, um, Every, anyone like we have 13 athletes who are competing at raw nationals uh, next week in the United States. And every single one of them has at least done six sets of one uh, with their second attempt during their last final training session. Um, so they've done double the meet in heavy singles and they've been training squat bench deadlift at least twice per week for the past 12 weeks they're conditioned for whatever that meat throws at them. Their energy levels are not going to bonk on deadlift because they're used to it. They're adapted to it. Conditioning for powerlifting is being able to deadlift well after you've done bench press and, and squat. Um, and so it's just a very specific way of looking at workload. So that's how, that's some insight into what we did with the Calgary Flames and what I, what my, perspective was on uh, their training philosophy and that's also uh, my perspective on our training philosophy as well I like it I think a lot of incidents and injuries happen when um, you increase workload quickly and you're not ready for it yeah or when you're not ready for the workload period right yep. um, weapon and it's not you talked a lot about uh, overall capacity. So it sounded like you guys use volume as a main driver in a lot of uh, your training um, and maintaining that. Do you want to talk over how you may uh, use other modifiable training factors such as intensity, frequency, and as you mentioned, the weapon of rest? Yeah, so uh, we follow a linear periodization model, but we use daily undulating periodization on a day-to-day -day basis. So that means that every week of training and we generally don't change the pattern like uh eight six four reps right eight reps on day one six reps on day two four reps on day three or seven five three or five three one like we always follow that same pattern where on day one there is a uh, higher volume day and on day three there is a higher intensity day that's lower volume that's how our weeks are structured. Uh, as we get closer to the meet, we never go backwards. We're not lowering intensity as we get closer to the meet. We're raising intensity. And so basically what you're looking at is like, you go from nine reps, seven reps, five reps. And this is an example of three times per week frequency. We don't always do this, uh, maybe 50% of the time, but it's individualized from client to client. Uh, and then the next week it's, or, you know, or the next like two weeks after nine, seven, five, we're doing eight, six, four. And then three weeks after that, we're doing seven, five, three, and then six, four, two and five, three, one. And then we peak. So when we drop the reps down, the weight goes up. Right. Uh, so it's a intensity is a linear thing. Uh, I think 
the analogy when I've been giving talks at, at seminars around the world is that um, volume is like the gas pedal. Uh, so how fast do you want to go in one direction? And the intensity is like the compass, it's steering wheel. It's like which direction you're going in. So if you really want to like aggressively, uh, I'd say build work capacity uh, and prepare yourself for grueling prep, you could do a lot of volume with lower intensity weights. If you really want to aggressively peak, you could do a lot of volume with peaking weights, right? Uh, or you could change the volume depending on how fast you want to go, how much progress you need to make. But obviously, when you're going faster, the risk is higher. And then you just use your data that you track throughout the blocks. Um, do you use that to make inferences on the next blocks on where they need to start then to continue to provide the progressive overload? Uh, that's a pretty specific inference. Usually what Ben and I do is we talk about where the clients at, uh, how their assessment was, how their last assessment, uh, and then their monitoring information. So how their body is doing and, uh, when the meet is and, our default is to continue making progress. So usually we're, we decide which lift or which lifts do we need to push. And then we challenge those lifts. And uh, depending on where we are in a block will depend on how we try to challenge that by prescribing a certain amount of volume. And the amount of volume which we prescribe is as a percentage of peak volume. With Raw Nationals coming up in our uh, brief talk ahead of time, uh, do you want to kind of go over understanding where uh, an athlete is at going into a meet and um, how you go about addressing their mindset and their training? Sure. So there needs to be assessments. Uh, I think that there's a lot of social media-driven training. No. And... I think where that comes difficult and it's become difficult for uh, at least one of my athletes in the past uh, and he'll go nameless is when you set the bar so high for yourself and for what the powerlifting community expects of you and the powerlift and, and you care what the powerlifting community has to think then you really have to live up to that at your next beat. Otherwise you look like a joker, right? Uh, you look like all, you know, all talk, no walk, right? Like you can do it in the gym, but not when it actually matters. And so I think the dangerous thing about all the RP training and the combination of that with social media, the desire for fame and acceptance and all these things is that, uh, I think that people are generally planning their meet strategies based off of what their third attempt is going to be. And I, I think that's treading into dangerous water. Uh, so if that's a top down approach to meat planning, uh, we prefer bottom up approach to meat planning, which is that uh, two weeks out from the meet, we'll do a rep max test after doing numerous singles, uh, at 90 or 92 and a half percent of the one rep maximum. 
uh, on squat, bench press, and deadlift in a stunning meet day format. And based on the results of those assessments, we will determine what a safe and reliable opener is for the athlete. And then when we write in their next week of training, we'll determine what a safe and reliable but more challenging second attempt will be. And then we'll practice that in SPD format as well, and we'll do video analysis on it. And the third attempt is expressed as a range. We don't know what the athlete's going to be able to do on meet day because it's going to be a volatile call no matter what. We've got to see how things look. And so we have ideas of where the athlete will fall based on their opener and their second attempt, but it's a range. And then it's up to the game day coach to bring that home and put in the right numbers that the lifter makes their third attempt. And statistically speaking, you're going to gain ground on at least 50% of your competition. That's based on Matt Gary's uh, study of over 16,000 performances over uh, nearly two decades. Uh, over 50% of the competition is their third on squat or deadlift. And so by making your third, you're gaining kilos on them. So uh, it's, it's really it's up to the game day coach and uh, the athlete to go out and execute, of course. But we try to leave attempt selection open-ended as far as the third goes. And we try to solidify and practice the first and second. So it sounds like you guys use kind of a emergent strategies and I'm sorry if I put a name to it that maybe doesn't match exactly with what you guys use, but um, I just had a talk with Mike Tashir and it sounds like you guys like to build from the bottom up um, and then just kind of see where the training takes them. Do you, um, so you think it's bad to apply training percentages to attempt selections going into a meet for realistic uh, perspective? Not really, because uh, we're looking at video and what the athlete can do when we tell them to go all out for an opener. And we're evaluating that weight uh, versus what we think they could do. And then we're evaluating a heavier weight for their second attempt. And we're seeing how things look. Uh, and yeah, so there's a there's a percentage to that, but we're not really concerned about it being ninety percent or ninety two and a half percent. Like before the Arnold Classic in two thousand eighteen, when like Taylor got five reps on his on his squat am rep, and he ended up opening up at ninety five percent, and it was perfectly fine, right? Like you gotta you gotta do what the performance tells you the athlete is ready to do, uh, rather than what your numbers say. Uh, so that's a big thing with our coaching. Do you guys use strictly percentage or a mix of percentage and RP in training then? So we sometimes will use RP for assessments uh, or for uh, an athlete who's coming back from injury. Um, but the thing we don't like about RP is that it relies on athlete inputs like we have to get the weight that they lifted from them after the fact. And I found as a coach that whenever I send out my sheets to athletes, I don't get the information that I want from them. So it's like I'm dealing with a bunch of crap data and then it's hard to make, it's impossible to make database decisions off of crap data. And so 
our entire like athlete management system is designed so that the only inputs that are required are like the athlete communicating with me. Uh, we know the projected amount of what they're going to lift. Uh, we know what their one rep maxes are. We have all of their volume data before we even sent out a program. Uh, we view that as we write their program. And I think that's very important for us. I like how you mentioned uh, the athlete filling out the kind of their log um, just with RPE being so subjective. Um, their version of RPE could be completely different from what a video or um, a bystander sees as an RPE. Right. Like for some athletes, like a double at 80% is like RPE 9. And for other ones with good training habits, it's like an RPE 5. You know, like uh, it varies depending on how big of a sandbagger an athlete is. <laughs> Last question here with uh, Rod Nats quickly approaching. Do you have any last minute tips to any lifters or coaches out there? Uh, well, I would assess where you're at, uh, plan a safe opener based on where you're currently at, not the record or PR that you're trying to chase. Uh, I would practice that if you haven't already uh, in squat bench deadlift format. Um, I would time your warm ups well. Like if you're in, if you're in flight A, we usually start like 45 minutes out. We take our time. Like the last three warmups are like eight to 12 minutes in between so that the lifter acclimates to the time that's going to be in between their attempts in the, in the actual flight itself. And if you're in flight B or flight C, like, uh, and the squat racks are taken and loaded up with all the heavy weight for the flight A lifters when they're finishing up, uh, grab an empty barbell and start taking your light warm-ups. Like, take 135. Have people, like, hold it for you. Like, get ahead of the game so that you're not stressing and freaking out warming up. Um, pace everything out. Uh, don't miss. <laughs> hit, hit depth on your squat. Wait for your commands. Uh, move powerfully. Keep your butt on the bench. Pause your benches. Um, lock your lock your knees out on deadlift. Um, and don't make dumb attempt selections. <laughs> That's all my advice for a lifter. Uh, it's not rocket science, but sometimes it seems like it is, and it doesn't have to be. Uh, and I think with higher standards of coaching, uh, people realize that a lot of the problems that they currently face have been solved by professional coaches for many, many years, you know? Yep. I completely understand. Uh, thanks for being on today, Jason. Do you want to give yourself a shout out and tell uh, the listeners where they can find you? Yeah. So, uh, you can find the content that we post on uh, the strength guys social media. So at the strength guys on Instagram is where we post these days. Uh, my personal Instagram, I don't post very much is uh, at Jason TSG. Uh, and our website is www.thestrengthguys.com. Um, if you're interested in inquiring coaching, you could do so uh, through the coaching section of thestrengthguys.com. And uh, if you have any questions about this episode, you can send me a DM on Instagram to the Strength Guys account or Jason TSG, or you can reach me at Jason at thestrengthguys.com via email. I appreciate you taking the time to be on today, Jason. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely.
If you learned something new from the podcast today, do us a favor and head over and give us a rating. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in our online personalized coaching or just more content, head over to completeperformancesystems.com to check us out.